You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. It seems the race to implement telehealth is on. The government's response to their whole systems demonstrator pilot has been very positive. However, is this hype oversold? We've found out from Jennifer Dixon, director of the Nuffield Trust, where they've evaluated it. So a message to commissioners would be, don't go all out and buy lots of expensive kit. It doesn't look as if you're going to get your money back. Concentrate far more on low-cost kit if you're going to buy any, but secondly, on the preventive care. But before that, alcohol, beneficial or detrimental? Evidence shows it depends on which aspect of health you look at. Research published online on bmj.com this week adds to that picture, by looking at the association between alcohol consumption and the risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis. Alicia Volk is Professor of Nutritional Epidemiology at the Karolinska Institute and co-author of that paper. Earlier this week, she joined me to discuss her research. You said in your paper that previous research on the association had mixed outcomes. So what did the picture look like before you undertook your research? Previous studies had shown association uh, with inverse association with alcohol consumption and uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but those showing this association, they were um, so-called case control studies. But prospective studies, those studies that have some other methodological uh, problems, for example, one of them was not adjusting for smoking, and smoking is known risk factor for rheumatoid arthritis. The other prospective study was uh, too small. Sure. Yeah. So it was time actually to, to come with some methodologically good prospective study and try to address this question. And we actually have such data and prospective cohort of women. And um, what is also important that in our cohort we have data not only one measurement of alcohol consumption, but actually we had twice. Uh, 10 years apart. So it's even better because we could look at the long-term effect of uh, alcohol. Of course. Now that cohort you're talking about there is the Swedish mammography cohort. Yes. So could you tell us a little bit about them? Um, The Swedish mammography cohort is so-called population-based cohort. When we started uh, this cohort in 1987, we actually asked all women in the age 40 up to 74 living in two uh, counties in central Sweden uh, to participate in this study. So they have got invitation to um, mammography screening. And at the same time, they have got also a questionnaire asking uh, many different lifestyle questions, but between uh, others, so we're asking about uh, alcohol consumption. And it was a high response rate, uh, 74% of all those women actually, they filled in the um, questionnaire. So it's a, a good um, it's a good cohort to, to take it from. Now, you've mentioned there also that you had two measures of alcohol consumption. So, so what were those two measures and did they sort of get around the biases that can sometimes come from, from self-reported measures like that? Um, we also did validation study because uh, self-reports, of course, people um, can't remember exactly 
how much on average they are eating something or drinking alcohol. And validity was quite good, so it was 0.8 correlation between the set records and records or recalls. So once you, you know, looked at this this data and the instance of rheumatoid arthritis amongst the women there, what did you find? We observed that women who consistently reported drinking more than three glasses of alcohol uh, per week, mm-hmm. they had about 50% decreased risk. More exactly, it was 52%. So it's very strong association, I would say. Absolutely. What's the sort of biological mechanism by which that's happening, and, and has that been researched? Um, the mecha- potential mechanism can be that um, there are studies indicating that alcohol uh, can downregulate immune response. Uh, both in animal studies it was shown and also in human studies. So it was uh, decreased production of some selective inflammatory factors. Mm-hmm. There is also study, uh, my study in this case, this study was showing that low persistent alcohol intake was associated with delay of uh, onset of rheumatoid arthritis. And also it was showing that it can stop progression in those animals. Mm. So there, there are several pieces of evidence that uh, alcohol indeed can be associated with lower risk of getting or developing of rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. But uh, I would like to add also something that what we couldn't actually address in our study. Um, the Swedish population of women or this um, this generation of women which are studying they were born 1914 up to 48. So they are not heavy drinkers. In the whole cohort was just 1.4% drinking more than two glasses per day. So it means that we couldn't um, address the question um, if drinking a lot of alcohol is still associated with decreased risk or maybe the risk uh, can be increased or decreased. We can't answer this question in this um, study population. Was there any any other sort of caveats in the study, any other data that you would ideally have had to uh, to investigate this more fully? We, we don't have information about family history of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. This can um, potentially confound or influence our results. I would also add, because now we are talking about only positive aspects of very moderate amount of alcohol drinking, but we can't forget that alcohol consumption is associated with increased risk of breast cancer, and there is consensus. So There are all studies showing the same. So this is the balance between um, cardiovascular diseases, potentially with rheumatoid arthritis. It would be nice if some other... Uh, prospective study could confirm our results Hmm. Um, and then the risk of breast cancer uh, among women and risk risk of breast cancer actually is increasing uh, at 10 grams of alcohol per day so the risk is increased 9% and this is quite um, precise estimate because this is based on pooling of um, many works, um, cohorts, I mean, U.S. cohorts, European cohorts, there are many cases of breast cancer behind and many 
uh, in large cohorts. So this is quite precise. This estimates uh, 9% increased risk per 10 grams uh, of alcohol daily. Um, Professor Volk, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us today. Thank you. And, as I said, that paper is now available on bmj.com. So I've come to the Nuffield Trust to talk to Jennifer Dixon, the director here, about telehealth. Um, we've got a, a raft of, of articles in the BMJ this week about it, uh, all based around, really, the research that the Nuffields have uh, been involved in. So, Jennifer, could you just sort of briefly outline what that pilot was and, and what your evaluation looked at? Well, the Department of Health funded what was called the Whole System Demonstrator Project, um, which effectively funded the um, trial of um, three uh, sites in the country, Newham, um, Cornwall and Kent, to try out various telehealth devices, um, particularly with older people with chronic diseases. And this, this, the randomised controls trial that we were involved in was looking at one specific aspect of the impact, which was the impact on service use and costs. And the intervention itself was not just the kit, uh, that's the telehealth devices and the telecare devices. Mm-hmm. It also funded any kind of wraparound care that was important to do as a response of the kit's signals. So if the kit signalled that a patient was becoming unwell, then um, the preventive care would have been some form of primary care or community care or even triggering a hospital visit. Um, So the intervention itself was quite complicated. It was complex in each different site. It was slightly different. The kit was slightly different in each site and the patients were slightly different in each site. So it was very complex. But because of the way the RCT was funded and powered, um, we had to lump all the patients together and then treat the intervention as if it were one, in fact. Mm. Yeah, and uh, those results didn't seem to indicate that telehealth was this amazing, fantastic intervention that's going to to save the NHS a fortune. Well, I mean, there's a big push at the moment to um, big interest in telehealth as to whether technology is going to save the day with respect to saving the 20 billion between now and 2015. Our results showed that in the context of this trial in the three sites, that there were very small changes in emergency admissions, uh, in reductions, uh, to the the tune of 0.14 admission per person per year, which equates to about £180 per person per year. Mm. So that isn't that great, but nevertheless, it's in the right direction. Um, We also found that there was, uh, we're not quite sure why, there were slight reductions in mortality in the intervention, the cases rather than controls. That has to be dug into a little bit more. The other thing was that there were not statistically significant reductions in costs. There There were none. Okay, so it doesn't on the face of it look as if telehealth is really going to produce the cost savings and the health that we had hoped. However, all is not lost because there were some contextual factors important to qualify those results by. So one was that the follow-up was only for one year. The second thing is that the of the 3,000 patients that took part in this trial, a lot were recruited who were low risk. They weren't the highest risk patients in whom one would expect perhaps a bigger effect of telehealth, telecare. Mm. And in fact, we're doing some sub-analysis to look and to see whether actually whether it was high-risk patients that had more than 0.14 admission reduction per year. Um, the third thing, is, as I've sort of mentioned, is that it wasn't just the kit, it was actually the surrounding care. And it could be, and our analysis suggests, 
in, from other work that if you really want to improve people's health and have really good secondary prevention you can't just do one thing you have to do about six things that have to happen all at the same time and those things include aligned incentives clinical leadership you need information and you need very tight objectives you need self-care self-help involve the patient a whole variety of things and it could be that not all those things were fertile enough in the three sites to to enable telehealth to show us its full potential so for all those reasons i think our results we should be sober when we look at these results so um, message to commissioners would be don't go all out and buy lots of expensive kit it doesn't look as if you're going to get your money back concentrate far more on low-cost kit if you're going to buy any but secondly on the preventive care uh, and that is the biggest area where if we're going to get any savings reductions and health improvements that's where it's going to be okay i mean you mentioned there that to power your research properly and because of funding issues you had to lump things together. We've seen in the BMJ and other things published that initiatives seem to depend very much on the individual implementation of them, the patient group that they're targeted at. Um, Yet there seems to be a sort of, when we talk about telehealth, it gets lumped together into this big sort of homogenous mess. Do you think there's any point in sort of generalising about telehealth or do we have to be much more specific about about what we look at? I think we do have to be very specific. I think at the moment, lots of people are... Uh, there's a lot of panic, actually, about the how the NHS is going to manage in the, in the coming future, given the financial envelope, particularly between 2015 and 2017. It's going to be particularly bad then. And um, in that kind of environment, people aren't sober, they aren't reflective, they just jump at extremes... And, you know, telehealth is a very economic label to, to, to and a reductionist label, but you're quite right. It's not the telehealth per se, it's the whole sort of um, complexity of care that needs to be given that we need to concentrate on. And that takes time, it takes reflection, there's no easy answer, there's no quick answer. We have to slowly but surely improve over time. So there's nothing that's going to be, there's nothing that's going to do it for us quickly uh, in terms of out-of-hospital care. Um, and I think the sooner we recognise that, then the better we can move forward. Sure. Now, we had a roundtable last week, week before, where Yumin Ko, who's the chief executive of Whittington Health, um, which is a foundation trust in London, was talking about her experience of moving care into the community. And she found that actually that didn't save any money, but it did increase patient satisfaction. Now, do you think telehealth will rely solely on the economic bottom line, or is patient satisfaction going to be, a, you know, a big player in this? Well, um, the NHS is about should be about increasing the value of care, meaning the quality of care, and if something is cost neutral, um, whether it's in the community or whether it's in hospital. If it is better for patients, then we've got to strive to do that. And there's no doubt that some out-of-hospital interventions, like telehealth, like indeed going back to Evercare about 10 years ago, um, patients loved it. And in some cases, the quality of care was better. It could be that increased quality of care and patient satisfaction can increase utilisation of care and therefore costs, mm. at least in the short term. And it, I think we've got to recognise that that might be the impact of some of these interventions that we're trying to produce, which means it is better care. 
But given where we are financially, we can't do that for long. In fact, you know, we have got to look to try to improve health and reduce costs. So even if it has a temporary effect, we just cannot afford, we, we, we can't afford it effectively. So at some point, even though the interventions we're looking at, integrated care, telehealth and all the rest of it, even if they increase um, satisfaction and increase value and quality, they have to be cost effective for us to use them um, because otherwise the NHS isn't going to manage. Sure. Now, um, cost effectiveness will also depend on economies of scale. In a world where GPs are now going to be commissioning very much the line, the bottom line, do you think that might stymie getting telehealth care rolled out in a, a cost effective way? I think the idea that we can just buy loads of uh, telehealth kit and foist it on an unsuspecting public is just completely wrong. Um, The whole zeitgeist of today's health service is that we are supposed to be working with patients, there's co-production, there's shared decision making, and whatever we do has got to add to their lives. It can't just be something we want them to do any longer. That's just not the way the world is. So we have to go with the grain of their lives. We have to make it easy for them, for them to want to try to um, self-manage in a, in a particular way. And everybody will be different. You know, Some people might want a bit of kit standing on top of the television, but a lot of people might want mobile phone apps, for example. So we've got to work with them. And um, you know, professionals aren't very good at listening necessarily are they and certainly older professionals may not want to listen to younger patients Mm. so there's a there's an there's an issue there and um so i think we have to move forward hand in hand with the public i think that's the first thing if we're going to get any of this stuff used effectively and the second thing just on back onto cost effectiveness is even if the kit and the intervention is all very cost effective Unless we, uh, and and hospital admissions, for example, are reduced, just say that happens, unless we are doing something to reduce hospital capacity, we won't see the savings. So there has to be twin action going on here, both in the hospital side and in the out-of-hospital side, but all of it underpinned by a kind of co-production with patients and listening, an iterative process, not foisting, the doctor knows best. Mm. Um, and suppose on that line, you know, we, you've you've mentioned there that patients might want apps. There's been a tendency in the health service to, when they're talking about IT projects, or commissioning them to go down a sort of proprietary route with, with new technology, with with over-engineered systems sometimes, which makes things very expensive and inflexible. Is there a sign that that the sort of move into telehealth will be done in a different way, um, perhaps using mobile apps? Or have the examples that you've seen been very much in that sort of old model of of NHS tech? At the moment, it's still, from my limited experience, has been the companies develop and they have a thing. And um, whether or not, um, you know, if a patient has multiple telehealth devices, you know, can they speak to one another? Are they coming from different companies? How often are they updated and so on? Um, But more widely, we have been looking here about something different, which is about open source software with respect to use of IT in the NHS. And I don't know, it's an interesting question about whether there's an open source equivalent in the technology industry, the telehealth industry, whereby doctors and patients themselves can craft these apps or at least write the code for um, in a more homegrown way than rely upon competing companies to do it. And that, because if you think about it, the NHS sees millions of patients every day. Um, there are uh, lots of very talented staff. Is there, isn't there some way that we can produce this creativity 
in an everyday way, using our own resources in an open source software kind of way, rather than having proprietary companies come in and, and rely upon competition to to progress. So that's a rather heretical sort of view, but it's it struck me with this Vista example, the open source software that the um, uh, v- the Veterans Administration have developed, as some people know about. Is there some kind of equivalent for telehealth and telecare that could be used in the NHS? I, I mean, I hope so. It'd be interesting to test to see which comes up with greater progress. Interesting. So are you kind of overall optimistic, worried? Um, what about the, the future of telehealth care in the, the NHS? I'm optimistic, actually. I think it will become more sophisticated, it will develop, it will have a place. We have yet to find exactly what place it has, particularly in the NHS of the next 10 years. But we should move forward slowly, organically, soberly, and reflect and evaluate as we go. Do not snatch off the shelf, do not foist upon people, do not imagine that it's going to give you an answer and savings quickly, um, but be uh, humble in and in, in so far what, it's, what it can offer. But don't close your face immediately against it. Perhaps, yes, if it's costing 3,000 quid for a, a go, but if it's um, something that is less than that, um, then, then soberly move your way forward, but, but there's no quick fix here. Great. Jennifer Dixon, thank you very much. And those articles we mentioned are online on bmj.com and in print this Saturday. That's all for this week. Next week we'll find out what on earth ecological public health is. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.